1 Peter chapter 5 To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. On the tech guys, that's my fault, sorry. Uh, so great to have one of our missionaries kind of read the scripture for us this morning. First Peter 5 is where we're camping out. Um, and as you can tell, we've been walking through the entire epistle of First Peter. Um, and so we've, we've come to an end uh, of it. And so this is sort of the uh, Peter ca- capturing for us the, um, the, the essence of where the, the Lord is taking those who are are dealing with fairly significant suffering. So you were thinking about believers who've committed their life to Christ, who are uh, struggling with life and death issues, and really what they're wrestling with is how to make the puzzle pieces fit of their life in the midst of God's perfect provision. So what's being married together in the book of 1 Peter is the grace of Jesus Christ bestowed upon us and the catastrophe and challenges of human life in the world and really figuring out how we understand what the grace of Christ does in the the day-to-day operations of life itself. The, The moments and the challenges, those places where things don't seem to make sense or things seem a bit fractured uh, in the context of our own experience. And so we look to God's character and we're, we're trying to process how the character of God meets our daily life and, and really what tends to hold sway, uh, not only over our feelings, but really over how we make decisions. A few months ago, um, 
oldest daughter got her driver's license, and so I was in the process of trying to fix up the car that she was going to uh, purchase from us and those things. And, and I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but sure enough, the, the car itself has all of these uh, bells and whistles or whatever lights that come on, and there's one light right in the middle of the dashboard, and it's the check engine light, uh, kind of the worst light to come on, on all honesty, because it means something's wrong, but you don't know what's wrong. And you can't figure it out unless you pay money for them to tell you what's wrong. And so it can be from the, the smallest thing to something incredibly significant. And so you take it into the dealership and they try and sell you a whole bunch of other things, but that's a conversation for another time. But so they, they end up just telling you, well, here, here, this looks like the issue. So they, they hook it up to a computer and it, it throws a code and then it tells you, okay, this is likely what's not working the way that it should. Okay, this first Peter is literally a spiritual check engine light. So here's what's happening, right? We're looking at the circumstances around us and there's not one of us sitting here this morning that wouldn't say, something's wrong. (laughs) We look at the world and we say something's off. We look at our experiences and relationships and we say something doesn't feel right. We, we gaze into our, our marriages or friendship relationships or, or even dating relationships and we say, man, things functionally work well most of the time, but things just don't seem to be functioning the right way all the time. Something seems off. And that's where Peter comes in to talking to to suffering saints, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are just struggling with life and allowing some diagnostic things. So the word becomes that place where we get diagnosed, we get hooked up to the computer of God's word and begins to show us that there are things that are are off. And and really, the the goal is not in Peter's uh, epistle to tell us how to just do better and do more. He's communicating to us the reliability of how God's grace changes things. That there's a, there's a potency and an impact and a tangibility of, of the grace of Jesus Christ that's availed to us through faith in his death and resurrection, that, that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, that, that we can see and peer into and realize that often in the context of our life or our thinking, Things are just out of whack. And so we've entitled this whole series, Live Differently. But we've done so in communicating that this is not about you living differently. It's about the potency of how God's grace changes how we live. So the the foundation of all of these things is how God's grace empowers us to see and live and operate in a world that is broken beyond repair. And so he's gone through all of these different categories, right? He's told us in chapter one, this is what your identity is in Christ. It's who you are. You're you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a people who belong to God. Like that just becomes this place of excitement and joy and this familial relational connection that, that we are God's people. And that then serves as the basis for, for what comes next. And it, it shows us from this kind of hierarchical standpoint, we look at the, those who, you, who have authority over you from emperors on down. And you, you find yourself underneath a really difficult emperor that's making terrible decisions or a, a president that you hate or any of those things. And, and that, that check engine light comes on. Where's your heart in the midst of those things? How do we live and serve as representatives of Jesus Christ in a world that just seems to be going haywire. 
Peter calls us to this place of loving submission. And and, and submission meaning the context of, of serving and loving as long as none of those in authority are calling us to sin, we find ourselves proclaiming the gospel by our conduct. This is how the grace of Jesus changes things. And this is how it's changed me. Moves in then to the the workplace environment. How do we live and serve in the midst of a work scenario where someone's above us? And then it moves into husbands and wives and how we serve in the context of that capacity and what that looks like. And, And then as he moves on from those things, he begins to continue to 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 expose for us the reality that there are things in our heart when, when, when those relationships or those places in our spheres of influence aren't working right, the, the goal is not to say, oh, I would do better, worship more, or believe and trust God more if circumstances were different. Peter's the exact opposite of that. He's saying, look, as we look into the circumstances around us and realize that God is in control and providentially caring for his people, but things seem off, what it does for us is becomes a diagnostic test of our own soul. Where's your heart is what he's asking. (laughs) What are you trusting? Are you trusting outcomes that you expect to have happened to sense that God can be trusted? Or do you trust God because you know who he is and the outcomes are firmly in his control? Two very different things, right? So there's this sort of spiritual litmus test that begins to take place about where our hearts and our motives are. And so this is really, 1 Peter is a deep dive into the spiritual condition of followers of Christ. And so he moved last week to the place of how we suffer differently. That in the midst of really challenging circumstances that are overwhelming, does our view of God change because of the hardship we experience or does the hardship we experience change because of our view of God? Right? Those, those are those sort of ouch moments in our own spiritual walk is there's places where Peter is equipping followers to come to this conclusion that there are things in their own walk with the Lord that are off. And it's not because of someone else. It's not because of something else. It's because there's a a limited view of the potency of God's grace in our own soul and our own walk with Christ. And so there's this place of of moving us back towards intimacy with Christ. And now, not only did he talk about living differently and suffering differently, but now in chapter 5, as he he kind of captures the attention of the, the fellowship of believers, the the followers of Christ who are part of a a local body, although they're dispersed, he now talks about how we lead differently. And so he he almost pulls out a section of the followers of Christ and, and those who are leading the church and begins to communicate to them very specifically about the expectations of what it looks like for leaders in the church who are followers of Christ to lead differently. Here's what he says in chapter five. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory or in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's what he tells them. Verse two, shepherd the flock of God. Okay. So what I want to communicate to you is that those who are called in leadership or elders of the church aren't the ones in charge. It's not their church. It's not my church. Proprietarily or 
ownership-wise, it's God's flock. He tells us that at the very beginning. And so there's a shepherding of the fact that we are all under the authority of God himself. He's the one in charge. Shepherd the flock of God that among you, that is among you, exercising oversight. And now he gives us some explanations as to how we think about doing those things. Not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. So when he, he communicates to us that there's a, there's a heartbeat behind the leadership of the church that begins to set the, the culture or the spiritual reality of how the church is called to, to focus and to pursue Jesus. And here's, here's what he's telling them. He's first and foremost calling them shepherds. That there's a, a protective oversight or compassion, a tenderness that exists, that is called or, or should exist in the leadership of the church that leads them to the chief shepherd. So the goal of leadership in the church is to, to recognize that part of the health of the church is seen through how leaders lead. How leaders function in thinking about what their motives are. And so what does he tell them to do right off the bat? Okay, you're exercising oversight, but you're not doing it out of compulsion, right? Well, there's, there's no more space. We, we, we have space on the elder board. And it seems like there are a few people that might be in the church. And, and let's just ask them. And they come and they say, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty busy, but we'll see. No, this is a calling. Right? So you, you leave vacancies on the elder board because you don't want people on the elder board that are doing it out of compulsion. They're doing it out of calling. They're exercising oversight because it's the gift that the Lord has given them. And so he's telling them that they're doing it not under compulsion, but, but willingly serving, willingly shepherding. Those who are called to leadership in the church lead differently because what they realize is that they are called to pursue Christ above all else and in so taking people to the throne of grace all the time in the nitty-gritty, messy parts of people's lives. Not for shameful gain. You know, the, the board of elders or those in leadership in churches aren't called to lead the church so that they can get attention or that they can preserve a spot or get accolades. There's no shameful gain here. It's the service to the body that we're called to. And they do it eagerly, not domineeringly, not trying to get their own way not deciding that this is how things have to be and unwilling to submit their own hearts and their own desires to the call of Christ in their lives. Lead differently. And you, uh, not dominating over the, uh, uh, those in your charge, but be examples of God's flock, he says. So this is, this is literally practice what you preach. Right? I mean, it comes down to legitimately as leaders lead in the context of the church. And, and all of us have some part in this, right? So as we think about our structure in the church, there's a level of elders that come forward every year that are, are uh, evaluated based on calling and gift and all of those components. And we have, a, we have a view and a window into saying, yeah, I see this man who loves the Lord and passionately pursues people and is, is not domineering and seeking his own agenda, but just seeks the face of Christ on a regular basis. And then there are those that might not have those same qualifications and, and find themselves saying, I'm not sure that this is the best fit. 
there's a reality that motives matter because motives begin to direct the trajectory of the church. Domineering people in leadership, you're ending up going to have a church look like the leader itself that's getting his own way or doing it out of compulsion. What's at the, the, the threshold of the door of that man's heart who might be leading? Bitterness and resentment to the church for asking him to do things that he doesn't want to do. You see how, how we lead differently makes a difference as the, you know, Peter calls these suffering Christians to look to those who have been positioned in leadership to lead them towards Christ. And then he, he makes this transition. And I think it's a transition we need to hang on for a few minutes. So he says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. And now, now he, he transitions and he says, Close yourselves, all of you. So the conversation now moves out of leading differently to now thinking about what our lives look like uh, as, uh, as followers of Jesus. And so here's what he says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't know if you guys ever were in school in high school, but when I was in high school, we, we actually had to take this Greek mythology class. It's kind of intriguing just to figure out how they try and understand the world. But there was this Greek god, Midas, and they called it the Midas touch, right? And so if you remember the story, everything that he touched turned to gold, right? And so it was great for the moment because he could be the, the richest person ever, right? The richest god all over the place because everything he touched turned to gold, this most valuable of metals. But he ended up leading to total and complete isolation because there was no ability for intimacy or connection because everything that he touched turned to gold. That's what Peter talks about in relationship to pride. Pride destroys everything it touches. Everything. And it comes maybe in some overt ways when we think about just people who are or arrogant or, or even we would say prideful. They're just always trying to get their own way or criticize or tell everybody that they're doing things wrong because it's not the way that they would do it. Certainly there's, there's overt pride. But, but pride is subtle and sinister in a lot of different ways. Sneaks in to marriages where there's this conversation about, well, it, things would be different if, if the other person just, just listened to what I had to say or actually just did what I wanted or, or arguments surfaced because no one really wants to hear the other. They just want to speak what they want to say and don't really care about what the other person has to say sneaks into churches, it sneaks into workplaces. Pride destroys everything it touches, everything. And it comes in subtle ways of, of criticism or grumbling or some level of, of complaint that exists in the context of things just not being the way that we want them to be. And at the threshold of all of those things is this sinister, seductive reality of pride. You know what pride says? Pride tells us that we see things clearly and others don't. <laughs> Pride deceives us that somehow in some way we know and others don't. Pride ruins relationships, kills churches. Pride destroys everything that it touches. And so what does Peter say? Not only to the elders in the church to lead differently, but then he tells them to clothe yourself with humility because pride destroys everything it touches. So what does he say? Lead differently for the elders, but then for all of us, surrender completely. There is a place 
where God is calling saints who are suffering and all of us who are followers of Christ to live our lives open-handed. It is not my life. It has been given to me as a gift from God. And because of that, he has rights over all of it. And so when I clothe myself with humility, what I'm saying is that my posture before God and man is such that I believe that every attitude and action that I have uh, exemplifies my worship of God or my worship of other things. Often, my worship of the way that I want things to go or what I like above other things. And, and what he's telling them is that when you get into this kind of circle of trying to figure out life looking the way that you want it to look, when you meet suffering, when followers of Christ meet suffering, they find themselves growing in bitterness growing in frustration and anger that God isn't showing up when they asked him to. And in reality, what we end up seeing is our circumstances is what we worship, not the God who is over all of our circumstances. It's a spiritual check engine light. So he tells us in the context of those things that part of the protection that's absolutely essential as we move forward as suffering saints in a world that's falling apart and brokenness abounds all around us, what do we say? God is the author of my faith, the object of my affections, and the source of my strength. I need nothing and ideally want nothing but him. For a follower of Christ who's suffering, who's committed to worshiping Christ alone and experiencing the grace that God has given each of us, suffering amplifies our worship. It pairs down all of those things that we have made more significant than Christ himself. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Why? Have you ever sat on this word, these two words? God opposes. God is against and fights tooth and nail against pride. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Why? Because pride says you have to have it your way. Pride says the outcome has to be what you want it to be. Pride tells God that he doesn't know as much as you do. Pride is the reason Lucifer fell. Pride is destructive. Pride destroys everything it touches. So here's what he tells us in verse 6. Humble yourselves... So put yourself in a position underneath the God who knows all things and is in charge of all things and loves you and trust in his character and rely upon his grace. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that in the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties upon him. It's a great verse, especially when it comes in conjunction with the exposure of pride. You and I don't know what we think we know. We're not as smart as we think we are. We're not as well gifted or, or have clarity that we think we have that we somehow in some way pride convinces us that we can figure out all things. But what does it lead to? A bit of anxiety and anxiousness. Anxiousness is coupled with pride because it leads us to believe that the outcome of these situations is dependent upon you. When ultimately it's dependent upon God alone. That it's this drawing of trusting who he is and what he's doing. And so this is what he says, right? Lead differently, 
He tells us to surrender completely. In the context of this, he also gives us this reality that why do we cast all our anxieties upon him? Because he's some domineering God that has to get his way? This is some angry, vindictive dictator that's just pulling puppet strings? That's not what 1 Peter says. 1 Peter, in this spiritual check engine light, wants to draw us as followers of Christ to this place of being reminded that right now in the moment of whatever you're experiencing, the God of the universe isn't removed and distant, but what does Peter say? Why can we cast all our anxieties upon him? Because he cares for you. Right? There's this vastness and love and pursuit and, and care and tenderness that Christ has for his people that he's working in and drawing us to so we can trust the tender surgical care of God and cast all of our fears and anxieties on him because we know that he's going to handle those anxieties and all of those fears with tenderness, concern, love, and compassion. If you know the God of the Bible... You know, just like we talked about a few weeks ago, evil has a shelf life. There is no such thing as injustice in the kingdom of God. Everything will be made right and dealt with one day. God sees all things and knows all things. And that's great, but it makes us feel a little bit distant from God. And so Peter moves us to this place where suffering saints are now in a position of coming to the realization that God is not just a God of the universe who has orchestrated all things, but he's a God of individual hearts who deeply cares for you. Your suffering has not lost the gaze of God. He has not turned a blind eye to your pain. Cast all of the fears of the future, the foot of the cross, because you know that Christ cares for you. Amen? Yes, this is right. It's good. It's true. And now he moves us after we've laid all of our uh, anxieties before God because we know that he cares for us. He gives us some instructions to well, let's say replace those anxieties. So you get around one thing and it leaves a vacuum. So let's put something else there. What does the Bible tell us should be there? Be sober-minded, watchful. Now here we get into the nitty-gritty. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout all of the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of some grace, minimal grace, grace is only found through God himself. The God of all grace, who has called you into eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Lead differently, right? Surrender completely. And now he tells us, fight consistently. Here's the image that he gives us. He tells us that the devil is like a roaring lion who's roaring, prowling around, seeking someone to devour. Here's what he tells us, if I can maybe put a more finer point on it. Our our enemy indiscriminately is looking for someone to devour. He's looking for easy targets. What's the easiest target? saints who are suffering. Everything has been taken from them. The reliability of this world is called into question. Brokenness and relationships have been fractured. These saints have watched loved ones be persecuted and killed for the faith. They find themselves struggling and wondering if they're next. 
And in the context of those things, this fragile human experience in which they're trying to just live life and not draw attention to themselves, you have this adversary who's prowling around like a lion, just looking for someone to devour. And it would be foolish and prideful to think that that's not us. Every single one of us is a target for the adversary. Every single one of us. And we talk about devour. What we're talking about is dismantling and breaking apart everything that's been built. You get this image of broken glass just fractured all over the place. Killing reputations. Killing ministry. Killing marriages. Killing relationships. This is how Satan works. Loves to see marriages dashed against the altar of pride. Loves to see marriages fall apart and relationships crumble and churches dissolve because people are focused on the wrong thing. We have an adversary and he's looking for someone to devour. I'll tell you this as well. His hunger is insatiable. He will not stop. So what does he tell us to do? Be watchful. But then all he says is, it is not talking about all of this infrastructure, like do this and do this and build this. He says, stand firm in the faith. What does that mean? It means move towards the knowledge and the experience of the character of God on a daily basis. Arm, equip yourself with the reality of knowing fully who God is so you can see the sinister, distorted lies of the adversary who would seek to distort the truth in such a way that it almost seems believable. Know God. Stand firm in your faith. Know who he is and the promise of his care for you in such a way that it equips you to resist the adversary that wants nothing but your destruction. He's telling suffering saints that part of their suffering and part of their struggle is because an adversary is looking to devour them. So we resist them, lead differently, we surrender completely, we fight consistently because we know that we have an adversary. But let me ask you this question because I think this is how Peter finishes up. What happens if you failed? Let's say the adversary has won a few victories in your life and mine. The time where sin held sway. Maybe it comes in the context of current addictions. Maybe it comes that, that bitterness is more than just a place at the threshold at the door of your heart. Maybe bitterness has actually moved in and we just haven't been willing to admit it. Maybe we experience more criticism and frustration with what the world has to offer than we'd be willing to admit. Maybe, just maybe, There is sin holding sway in our hearts. What then? Is the battle over? What's left if those victories have been won by the adversary or even just our own desires and we just given over and given up? Peter tells suffering saints that no matter how far you've gone and how dark it feels now, you're never too far and it's never too late. Here's what he says. This is what God does as we stand firm in the faith. And you too, after you have suffered for a little while, verse 10, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, so the promise and the hope of heaven, will himself 
This is what the God of all grace is doing in the midst of the fighting and the struggles and the brokenness and the challenge and all of those things. Here's what he does. He restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes you. God, what an unbelievable promise. Restores, meaning that that what God does is he, he brings back together that which has been broken. He heals, redeems, restores, brings back to wholeness that has, that has been fractured, that which has been fractured by sin or the challenges of the world. He tells us that he confirms, reminds us of the truth of who we are and confirms our status and identity of who we are in Christ, that which cannot ever be taken by Satan. Strong, not all-powerful. You all of us who have faith in Christ are God's kid, period. And we need that reminder as we find the hope that Christ has given us. Strengthen. This is an athletic term. It means to give you the muscles necessary to run the race. (laughs) This is what God does. Like, it's not as though we look at the God of all grace and say, look, God, I'm really trying This is hearkening us back to the reality of what we need is to find ourselves fully surrendered. Christ has the capacity. The God of all grace is all we need. He is the one giving us the strength to be able to admit our wrongs, even in the midst of someone who is unwilling to admit their wrongs to us. The context of a marriage environment or a church or challenges that have taken place, we find ourselves realizing that the hardest place to step into or those places where we know are broken, but we look at the God of all grace and he restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes us. This is what he does. He strengthens, gives us what we need as we continue to pursue him above all things. We lay down our pride, our own self-sufficiency and self-reliance, We say on a regular basis to ourselves and to one another, this is about the glory of Christ. Whatever God needs to do in me, let it be. Then it says he establishes us. It means to set a firm foundation. And all of the rockiness and the uncertainty of saints who are suffering in a world that seems to be falling apart, the call is that God himself, the God of all grace, sets the foundation for which you build your life. He is the one that we hold to. He is our rock and our strength. God of all grace restores, confirms, strengthens, establishes us as his kids. So then he he tells us that the reality of all of these things exists through relationship and intimacy with Christ. I was trying to think through the entire book of 1 Peter. You have five chapters And it really does serve as that spiritual check engine light where there are all of these places where we're realizing like, yeah, when I think about trying to submit to ungodly leaders, here's what happens in my heart. I get mad. Oh, I don't like to see that there's anger in there and frustration that they don't listen or it's not happening the way that I want it to. And I find it hard to trust that God's in control. And so I see those things or I find bitterness at the threshold of my marriage or my relationships with my kids. And I realize that there's something inside there. And what it is, at its root, is selfishness. I want what I want, or I'm not seen the way I want to be seen. And so I need to make sure that I make things happen. But if we're willing to live differently and 
suffer differently, lead differently. We have to surrender completely and fight consistently. But when you're fighting, you got to know your enemy. (laughs) And you know what? If I can just tell you one thing, your enemy's not each other. Just so you know. It's an adversary who wants to devour you. And how's he going to do that? Fracturing relationships, causing bitterness, anger, grumbling, complaint, frustration. All of those things that are not the gifts that the Lord has given us in terms of those who follow him. So he strengthens and confirms and establishes us as his people. So when I think about the final capture of 1 Peter, the entire book, here's what I wrote as I think about trying to analyze the whole book, and I'll finish with this, but the whole book, if I can capture it in just a sentence, here's what, this is my attempt. As cherished children of God, enjoy limitless grace by turning our lives over to his tender care, realizing every moment is touched by his grace and for the sake of his glory. First Peter, what a journey we've been on. 